Hey, it's Alan, and I just wanted to let you know that you can now listen to the ongoing history of new music early and ad-free on Amazon Music, included with Prime. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE. We've all been in this place. Let me just paint the scenario for you. Tickets for a concert you really, really want to see are set to go on sale at exactly 10 a.m. So you're on the Ticketmaster site as the clock ticks down towards the appointed time. 9 9 o'clock, showtime. Enter. Nothing. Refresh, refresh, refresh. Nothing. Okay, so you try mashing the F5 button a bunch of times. No luck. You hit Control-R a couple of times. Still nothing. But then, one last time, and suddenly you're in. Except that you're not. It's 10.01 and 17 seconds, and the show you so desperately wanted to see is sold out? <laughs> you did everything right. How, how could so many tickets get sold so quickly? Hello, what's this? Tickets are already for sale on the secondary market? And the price is double the face value? What, what just happened? This is just one ticket buying scenario. Maybe you were able to get in only to discover that the tickets were already selling for quadruple the original price. And that's through the primary seller. In this case, Ticketmaster. You're the act's biggest fan. You should be able to get tickets to at least one of their shows. And you've been shut out in less than 90 seconds. Hello? Ever get the feeling that you've been cheated? Hold on. Back up. There's a lot to process here, and it can get pretty emotional. Buying concert tickets can be one of the most frustrating of all retail experiences. And a big part of the problem is that the average person I'm sorry to say this, just doesn't understand how it works. Okay, I, I know that sounds condescending, but I, I don't mean it to be. Getting a ticket to a concert should be simple, but it's not. The complexities of buying and selling concert tickets today would have driven Einstein crazy. Stick around, and I will do my best to unravel everything for you. And by the time we're done, I won't have made it any easier for you to get a ticket, but maybe you'll understand why you can't get one. This is the Weird History of Concert Tickets, Part 2. This is the Ongoing History of New Music Podcast with Alan Cross. Hello again, and once again, I want to warn you that things will get very emotional over the course of this program as I try to present the history of buying concert tickets. This is the only way to understand why it's so hard and so expensive and so frustrating to get your hand on a set of tickets. 
We finished the last episode in 1991, with Ticketmaster emerging as the dominant seller of concert tickets. It had outlasted and outspent a number of rivals in the computerized ticketing space. Part of its success was that it was a ticket service that made use of computers instead of a computer company that sold tickets. Big difference here. Ticketmaster was the former. The defunct Ticketron was the latter. Ticketmaster had a reputation of having a rock-solid back-end when it came to the technical stuff. And let's review something. Before the internet came along, and we're still talking about that era, tickets were bought at physical, in-real-life box offices and over the phone talking to a real human, and you had your credit card in your hand. There were a couple of exceptions to this, mostly involving a couple of bands who liked to handle their own ticketing through the mail, old-school snail mail, the Grateful Dead being one of them, but we'll come back to them a little bit later. Here's another Ticketmaster advantage. Unlike some of its predecessors, Ticketmaster gave its clients the software and hardware for free. Now, how could they afford to do that? Well, by levying service charges on top of the sale of every ticket. For a while, you could skip paying the service charge if you went directly to a physical box office at the venue, but as we'll see, that soon disappeared. Again, a service charge is how the ticket seller makes money and covers its costs. They do not get a piece of the face value of the ticket. There may also be a service charge that goes to the venue for the same reason. This became known as a facility fee in some territories, something that fans paid, although the venue still made money on concessions, parking, beer, and so on. However, in the 1990s, these charges started to creep up, and the industry, encouraged by Ticketmaster, was pretty aggressive in boosting these charges for its services. For example, tickets for a circus usually had a lower service charge than for a concert. That's just the way it had always been. However, that changed in the 1990s as the charges became more uniform across all ticketing. Crucially, portions of service charges would be rebated to the promoter and the venue. Oh, and another thing, instead of sharing the inventory of tickets with multiple ticket sellers, Ticketmaster signed deals where they were given the entire inventory for a given show. Now, that might sound bad, but hear me out. First, under this system, as a fan, this was actually pretty good. There was just one place to go for tickets for the gig. You didn't have to guess which seller had the best supply and the best seats. Secondly, this wasn't any different than a venue signing an exclusive deal to sell Pepsi or Coke at its concession stands. Same thing as selling beer from a specific brewery. It was a simple business deal that meant both the fan and the venue knew what they were going to get over, say, five years instead of things changing for every show. Now, think about how annoying that would be every time a new show went on sale that you had to figure out which company was selling the tickets. For the most part, Ticketmaster made selling tickets much, much easier for everyone. And while there were complaints about service fees, most people just shrugged. But not everyone. Here's another old-timey rock concert ad from back in the day. These are fun. This is from 1975. And admission to this show was $3. And get this. There was free beer from 8.30 to 10. By popular demand, they're coming back. From the windshield northlands of Canada comes the hot and smoking sounds of Rush. This Thursday night at the Travis Street Electric Company. Take my life again. 
rocking shoes and come stepping out for in concert night at the Travis Street Electric Company Thursday night. For three bucks, you get in for some good time stomping, lots of liquid refreshments, two big game rooms, and a whole bunch of crazy people like yourself hooting and hollering. So come on down Thursday night for Rush. Rush in concert Thursday night at the Travis Street Electric Company, 4527 Travis, just south of Knox in Dallas. Now I'm going to play you some of this, and since we're talking about service charges, you may know where this story is going. There's Pearl Jam from back in the day, and before we get into their story regarding concert tickets, it's important to know that they were not the first act to fight the computerized ticket sellers over service fees. The Grateful Dead, who established a very efficient direct-to-fan method of selling thousands and thousands of tickets to their shows back in the 70s, also got into Ticketmaster's face over the topic. And in the end, they were able to come to an accommodation. That battle could be a show in itself. Several bands took notice of what the Dead did and asked them for advice. One of those bands was U2. The other was Pearl Jam. In May 1992, Pearl Jam wanted to play a free show in Seattle and asked Ticketmaster to handle ticketing services. Now, even though the gig was free, they still needed to monitor and limit the number of people in the park, which would be around 30,000 people. That was a requirement of the city for Pearl Jam to get use of the park. So Pearl Jam approached Ticketmaster and they said, sure, but just so you know, we have costs that will run between a dollar and a buck fifty per ticket. So Pearl Jam, if you want us to handle the ticketing for this free show, it's still going to cost you up to $45,000 to use us because we have costs that we're not going to absorb. You have to pay us for our service. In the end, for this particular show, Pearl Jam elected not to use Ticketmaster, but the experience somehow left a bad taste in their mouth. And this was the beginning of a fight. When it came time to tour in 1994, Pearl Jam told all promoters that they were going to keep ticket prices as low as possible. This was a big thing during the grunge era. And they set a price of $18. And they would not hear of a service charge of any more than 10% of that. So in other words, the all-in ticket price had to be under $20. Long story short, Ticketmaster and some of the promoters had existing deals that are too complicated to get into here. And the bottom line is that Ticketmaster wanted a service charge of up to $4 on top of the 18 buck face value. Okay, more fighting. Pearl Jam tried to get around the service charge issue entirely by exploiting a loophole in Ticketmaster's contracts that said promotional concerts, charity gigs, and private shows could be ticketed in any way the act wanted. And this is the way the band managed to play a number of shows without using Ticketmaster, even though some of these gigs were in venues with Ticketmaster contracts. Ticketmaster was completely bypassed. Battle lines were drawn. And here's where things start to get really complicated. Let's say that Pearl Jam wanted an all-in ticket price of $25. That's how much you paid at the box office or wherever it was to get your hands on a ticket. Ticketmaster's service charge was $4 meaning that the band got $21 of that all-in ticket price of $25. But then Pearl Jam said, no, 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 no. You charge $2 so we can make $23 per ticket. And Ticketmaster would refuse, saying that 
The van could have their $25 ticket if they agreed to take less. In other words, charge less for your tickets, charge less for the base price. Pearl Jam refused. Then Kurt Cobain died. Pearl Jam's heart wasn't in it anymore, and the rest of that particular tour was canceled. It was in this interim that the U.S. Justice Department contacted Pearl Jam about their relationship with Ticketmaster. They'd been keeping tabs on Ticketmaster since the 1991 merger with Ticketron, and they'd heard about the fights Pearl Jam was having over service charges. It appears that the Justice Department may have encouraged Pearl Jam to file a complaint, not a lawsuit, asking for an antitrust investigation into Ticketmaster's practices. So Pearl Jam did, alleging that Ticketmaster had made it difficult, if not impossible, for the band to tour because they couldn't play certain important venues because of the fight over service charges. You with me so far? A hearing was set for Thursday, June 30th, 1995. Members of Pearl Jam's organization went to Washington and were joined by some music industry friends who were on the same page. The media coverage was intense. But in the end, nothing came of it. The government investigation was closed in 1995 without anyone doing anything. The only promise was that the government would continue to monitor developments in the concert ticketing space. Sound familiar? Yeah. This was, again, 1995. Meanwhile, Pearl Jam went ahead with their next tour, vowing to use non-Ticketmaster venues with a ticketing company called ETM. The results were very hit and miss. Okay, more miss than hit, actually. And the last part of the tour ended up being canceled. And after that, again, long story short, Pearl Jam went back to using Ticketmaster. <laughs> Why would they do that after this fight? Well, it was simply the right business decision. In the early 90s, Pearl Jam albums were selling like crazy, so the income stream was fantastic. They were making $15, $20 million a year. But by the end of the decade, albums weren't selling as much, and illegal file sharing had started to cut into sales. All that revenue, that $15 or $20 million a year, had to be made up somewhere. That would be playing live and maximizing revenue from touring been playing in all the right venues. And if most of those venues had ticketing contracts with Ticketmaster, what are you going to do? Meanwhile, the general public had acquired this brand new reason to hate on Ticketmaster and honestly believed that Pearl Jam was on the side of the fans. There have only been a couple of bands who have taken on Ticketmaster and won. The first was the Grateful Dead. Over years and years, the Dead built up their own mail-order ticketing platform called Grateful Dead Ticket Service, and they did not want to give up control over distributing tickets to the biggest of deadheads. They held their ground and eventually reached an equitable deal with Ticketmaster. The other group was another jam band, Denver's String Cheese Incident. They had a mail-order system similar to that of the Grateful Dead, and just like the Dead, they were able to negotiate a deal with Ticketmaster, but it was a long, hard fight. By the time we got to the 90s, selling concert tickets was big business and kept getting bigger. Ticketmaster grew along with it. Paul Allen, the co-founder of Microsoft, recognized this, and he spent $325 million U.S. million to acquire an 80% stake in the company. There were more mergers and purchases. Ticketmaster absorbed a company called City Search in 1998. Another ticketing company called TicketWeb was bought in 2000. And by then, the internet had become a thing. This is something we tend to forget. 
Before the internet came along, tickets were bought at physical, in real life box offices and over the phone with a credit card. But something was about to change. Before we get into that, here's another classic concert commercial. It's wild, it's wacky, it's slick, it's savvy. It's the madcap, daffy, fractured, dingling, ring-a-ding, loony, zany, side-splitting, rib-tickling, slap-happy world of... Jim Croce will be at Harper on Friday, February 2nd for a two-hour concert in the Harper College Lounge. Tickets will go on sale in advance starting Tuesday, January 8th. The price is $2 for students and $2.50 for the general public. And here's a little more live music. When we come back, we'll switch gears a bit to examine why the price of concert tickets has become so expensive over the last three decades. If you are of a certain vintage, you may have a shoebox at home filled with ticket stubs from all the concerts that you've been to in your life. I do, and it's fun to look back at the prices we paid. Uh, Here's one for an Elvis Costello show, $7. Here's one for a Rush show, $12. I can't see who this one was for because the ink is faded, but I can make out the price, $17. Today, those amounts wouldn't even cover the service charge on some tickets. Prices have gone way up over the last three decades, and there are several reasons. First, inflation. Everything costs more. It's just the way things work. Second, the economics of touring have changed. Back in the day, you'd go on tour to promote your new album. It might not even matter if you broke even or lost money on the tour because record sales would more than make up for it. Not anymore. The whole thing has flipped. A new record is often an excuse to go on tour because all the money comes from being on the road. And third, prices went up because the people in the industry, artists, managers, promoters, venues, knew that they could raise prices and we would still pay them. They had a point. In the days before the internet, concert tickets were woefully underpriced relative to the spectacle that you received for the money. For example, back in 1972, you could go see Led Zeppelin for $6. That's nearly $40 in today's money, but even 40 bucks is cheap for a band like Zeppelin. Also, the balance of power tipped from the promoters to the acts. And the person musicians should thank for this is Led Zeppelin manager Peter Grant. He could not see why a band should share ticket revenues 50-50 with a promoter. He demanded and got a 90-10 split for the band. And that has since become the standard almost everywhere today. In less than three weeks, Led Zeppelin. In the days of my youth, I was told what it means to be a man. You took me on. Long-awaited tour of Led Zeppelin arrives at Rich Stadium. Tickets for Led Zeppelin are $10.50, which includes the service charge, and are limited to $10 per person. 
tickets for Led Zeppelin are on sale at Festival Tickets in the Stadler, All Nantu, and Fantastic stores except West Seneca. Central Tickets, The Record Breaker in Hamburg, Amherst Tickets in Eastern Hills Mall, UB's Norton Union, and D'Amico's in Niagara Falls. In less than three weeks. Led Zeppelin. Led Zeppelin. August the 6th at 8 from Concerts West. 90% to Led Zeppelin, 10% to the promoter and the venue. Actually, the split can be even greater than that. A little sidebar here. Certain acts can demand and get 105% or more of ticket sales. Now, how is that possible? One word, beer. If an act has a fan base that drinks a lot, that means the concession stands at their shows will sell a lot of beer and wine and other alcohol. And if the fans have a reputation of drinking a lot and enough, the act can demand a cut of alcohol sales. Jimmy Buffett is one of those acts because his fans, the Parrotheads, will reliably drink a lot at every show. And Jimmy will get 105% of ticket sales. And just to follow one more tangent, we've all been to amphitheaters and arenas and stadiums where all the seats have cup holders. Yes, that's a very convenient place to put down your drink, but that's not the primary reason these cup holders exist. They're there so you can buy two drinks at once and have some place to put your second beer while you drink your first. Seriously, that's the role of cup holders at these venues. There are more reasons why concert ticket prices have gone up. We'll get to those after a little bit of this. Here's the fourth reason concert ticket prices have increased in cost. As file sharing and the decline of physical record sales cut into artist revenues, people started to get clever about concert ticket pricing. First, there was tiered pricing. Better seats closer to the stage cost more. Believe it or not, that wasn't always the case. Then artists started to get creative about those better seats with VIP sections that cost even more. And then very VIP sections where you got something in addition to the show, like perhaps admission to the sound check or a meet and greet with the artist. VIP offerings are only limited by the artist's imagination and tolerance for meeting their superfans, which uh, can be really tiring. And remember, service charges are often set as a percentage of the face value of the ticket. If my memory is correct, this is something that we started to see sometime in the 90s. So no more flat fees, no more flat service charge fees of a couple of bucks per ticket. If we look at Beyonce's 2023 tour, some tickets sold for $4,000 and the service charge, a percentage of the face value, could be as high as $550. At around the same time, some artists started pushing the envelope to see how much audiences were willing to pay. The Eagles were very aggressive in this area. In 1994, they became the first act to charge more than $100 for a ticket for their Hell Freezes Over tour. And yeah, there was a lot of complaining. But guess what? The fans ponied up. And other acts started thinking, well, if the Eagles can do it. Reason number five for ticket price increases. Competition. Now, I know this seems completely counterintuitive. Isn't competition supposed to be good for the consumer? Doesn't that always bring prices down and spur innovation in the marketplace? Yes, it does. Except in the concert industry. Let me explain. 
When a band is ready to go on tour, their agent lets promoters in various cities and territories know. If there is more than one promoter in a certain city or territory, those who want the show will bid on it. And that includes offering better and better guarantees. Let me explain that. If an act is popular enough, they can demand a guaranteed payment for a given gig, no matter how many tickets are sold. It is the minimum that they will make for that show. And the size of the guarantee becomes the promoter's problem. The band just wants to be paid. So if we have multiple promoters bidding for a gig or even an entire tour, the guarantees offered to the act will get bigger and bigger and bigger until finally one promoter wins. The promoter now has to recoup all his costs, including all the additional money he or she has put up for the guarantee. And where does that get recouped? In the price of a concert ticket. The bigger the guarantee trickles down to the fan who ultimately pays for it. This also affects service fees. The higher face value for the ticket, the higher the service charge. And to go into the weeds a little bit, sometimes the ticket seller will rebate the venue, the promoter, and even the act a piece of that service charge to offset their costs a little more. If that's the arrangement, well, then the service charge might even be higher. And all of this is before you go to the show where you park, you buy beer and band merch. Parking and concessions go to the venue. That's how the venue covers costs and turns a profit. Merch sales go mostly to the band, although the venue will take a cut of sales, maybe 20, 25%. I've heard as high as 50% in some cases. So in order to make up for that, the band will have a profit target for merch sales. The act may charge even more for their t-shirts and other swag. Here's reason number six for higher concert ticket prices. Artists and managers have finally realized that they've been underpricing their concert tickets for years relative to other events like sports and theater. They're looking for fair market value for what they do and what they offer. Remember that phrase, fair market value. We're going to come back to it in just a second. But first, another classic concert commercial. Well, it's one for the money, two for the show, three to get ready, now go cat. That's Carl Perkins, Mr. Blue Suede Shoes in person. And he's coming to Memphis, Tennessee, direct from the Perry Como TV show. Carl Perkins will rock and roll into Overton Park Shell for a great show Friday night, the 1st of June, 8 p.m. Hear him sing Blue Suede Shoes, Honey Don't, and his sensational new Boppin' the Blues. There'll be Johnny Cash in the Tennessee 2 with Cry, Cry, Cry and Folsom Prison Blues. Rock and Roll Ruby with Warren Smith. The new sensation Roy Orbison and his Teen Kings with the Ooby Dooby. Hey, baby. Jump over here when you do the ooby dooby. I gotta be near. And the rockin' daddy, Eddie Bond and the Stompers. It's a great country rock and roll show starring the new sensation of the nation, Mr. Blue Suede Shoes, Carl Perkins in person. Buy your tickets now for Johnny Cash, Warren Smith, Roy Orbison, Eddie Bond, and Mr. Blue Suede Shoes, Carl Perkins in person. Friday night, the 1st of June, 8 p.m. at Overton Park Shell in Memphis. And now, more music in concert. A few more points about the weird history of concert tickets coming up. I have to emphasize this again. Before the internet came along, concert tickets were bought at the box office at the venue, at ticket outlets, often in a department store or record store, or over the phone with a credit card. In each case, 
you had real live humans handling your orders and requests. Ticketmaster, in fact, all the ticket sellers, had physical outlets that you could visit in person. Computerized ticket selling meant that the outlet had a terminal connected via phone lines to a central computer where all the tickets for a tour resided virtually. The human entered your request into a terminal, the tickets were retrieved from the database, and printed out right there at the outlet. That all began to change around 2000, when concert tickets began to be sold online. Slowly but surely, computerized ticket selling meant opening a browser and purchasing tickets without any human interaction at all. From a ticket seller's point of view, this made things much more efficient. And as the technology improved, greater and greater volumes of tickets could be sold faster and faster. Physical box offices began to disappear. And soon all transactions, with the possible exception of tickets sold through the box office at the venue, were done online. This shift required a tremendous amount of capital expenditure in both hardware and software. The investment required made it pretty much impossible for new players to enter the ticket-selling universe. And since Ticketmaster was the best capitalized, it was the company that led the charge towards online selling. Ticketmaster's first website was launched in June 1995. Back then, it was a simple searchable database of events for which Ticketmaster had tickets. You still had to go to an outlet or call the Ticketmaster phone line to make a purchase. But then things changed forever on September 11th, 1996, when the website began allowing online purchases. Again, Ticketmaster was way ahead of the game because Microsoft founder Paul Allen was a major shareholder, and he had access to the latest Microsoft technology. For the record, the first online ticket sale took place on that day, September 11th, 1996, and it was one ticket to a Seattle Mariners game. Ticketmaster was curious, and they called up the buyer and asked what motivated him to use the website. And his answer was, and I'm not making this up, was, I don't like people. I don't like talking to people, and I don't want to talk to you. And then he hung up. Ticketmaster also used its credit and cash to buy up competitors like GetMine.com and TicketsNow. Plus, Ticketmaster began to see the possibilities of vertical integration within the concert industry. If you could own key elements of the music business, then it could become even stronger. And that's why in 2008, Ticketmaster bought an artist management company called Frontline Management. Clients included Aerosmith and Jimmy Buffett. Then the big merger. In February 2009, Ticketmaster, the biggest seller of tickets, merged with Live Nation, the biggest concert promoter. The new company was called Live Nation Entertainment, and this resulted in even more vertical integration. Live Nation promoted shows, not just locally, but nationally and internationally. Instead of agents putting out the word to dozens of local promoters when an act was going on the road, Live Nation simply handled everything. Live Nation also owned a chain of amphitheaters that needed to be filled every summer. And Frontline Management was there to steer some tours into not only those amphitheaters, but to venues with which Ticketmaster had contracts to sell tickets. Now, okay, I know a lot of this show has read like a history of Ticketmaster, but you can't separate that company from the business of selling tickets, especially since Ticketmaster sells maybe 70% of all concert tickets worldwide, including for most of the biggest acts in the world. There was considerable opposition to that merger with Live Nation, and there still is. But it has held up despite plenty of scrutiny under antitrust laws and rules governing monopolistic-like behavior. 
There have been many calls for Ticketmaster to be spun off or even broken up, but nothing has come of that. And if it were to happen, chances are we'd just go back to the bad old days when concert fans had to choose between different ticket sellers hoping to find the best seats for a show. But that is another discussion entirely. Bottom line is if you're buying tickets to a major show or a festival, or even a smaller show, there is an excellent chance that the transaction will go through Ticketmaster. Not always, but very often. In a moment, we'll talk about how those tickets are sold. But I think we should hear another vintage concert ad first. In September 18, you and 3,500 friends are invited to take a wild ride down the highway to hell. Plug into the 1980 AC-DC high-voltage tour. Electrifying. Scorching AC-DC live in concert September 18th at the Kiel Opera House. Tickets are on sale now at Backstage Records, Lame Duck, Co-op, Spectrum, All Three Peaches, the Keel Opera House box office, or call Dial Ticks at 569-0500. Prepare yourself for the shock of your life. The 1980 AC-DC High Voltage Tour, September 18th, Keel Opera House. And here's a little more live music. The last thing I want to do is explain how concert tickets are sold today. When a show prepares to go on sale, the tickets are divided into a number of categories. The first category is called holdbacks. These are tickets reserved for specific purposes. For example, does the band have a fan club? If yes, then a certain number of tickets are held back for the fan club. Has the band come up with VIP pricing for people who wish to pay for something extra, like attending a sound check or sitting right up front? If so, that's another bunch of tickets that are removed from the pool. Is there an American Express front of the line or Visa or MasterCard VIP program? They require tickets. Chances are the act will ask for X number of tickets on each stop of the tour that they may use for their own purposes, like giving to family and friends. The venue will want some tickets for promotional and marketing purposes. Radio stations will be given tickets for contesting designed to hype the show. The act's label will want some tickets too. And then there's the matter of seat licenses. This is where season ticket holders to, say, a hockey team at the venue get first crack at tickets as part of paying that seat license. More holdbacks. So let's add this all up. Let's say a venue has a capacity of 15,000 people. Now let's tally up all the theoretical holdbacks. 1,000 for the fan club. So we're down to 14,000. 500 for VIP seating. 13,500 left. Credit card VIP programs, we'll say another 2,000. So we're at 11.5. Holdbacks for the act, call that 100. Tickets for contests run by radio stations and other parties, call that 400. So we're now down to 11,000 tickets. Another 100 to the record label, another 100 to the venue, another 500 to seat licenses. So we're now down to 10,300 tickets. But wait, this leads me to a second category of tickets. The promoter, the ticket seller, and the venue may have existing deals with ticket brokers, companies that resell tickets on the secondary market. So yeah, there may be existing deals with what you might call scalpers. Why? Because if the venue and the promoter unload tickets to these eager buyers, 
the financial risk is lifted from their shoulders and placed on the secondary seller. The tickets are recorded as sold, and now selling them are the ticket broker's problem. And let's just say, for the sake of argument, when it comes to our theoretical gig, let's say 3,000 tickets head that way. So we're now down to 7,300 tickets from an original total of 15,000. And that remainder is what goes on sale to the general public at, let's say, 10 a.m. Friday. And when they do go on sale, not only do fans in the immediate market try to get tickets, so do fans in other markets. Plus, we have scalpers using software buying programs called bots to hammer the online box office with requests for tickets. And if we're talking Ticketmaster and its high-speed ticket-selling software and hardware, it can process hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of requests per minute. With that much demand, and with the speed of servers, and with the number of nodes operating, those remaining 7,300 tickets could disappear in 60 seconds. And ta-da! The instant and frustrating instant sellout. Meanwhile, the holdback situation is very leaky. Members of the fan club get tickets and might immediately flip them to scalpers to make some extra money. Same thing with the holders of seat licenses. The venue may decide that they'd rather flip some of its tickets to pump the show. And even the act, the artist on stage, might decide to make a little extra money by scalping its own tickets. Seriously, this happens all the time. That's how things work today. Unlike, say, when this gig was being promoted. New group with the Monkees is called the Jimi Hendrix Experience, and they've joined the Monkees Concert Tour of the U.S. They weren't in there in the very beginning. It's just over the past couple of days. Now, when Keener brings you the Monkees in Detroit, on July the 29th, the Jimi Hendrix Experience will be with the Monkees. Uh, Jimmy's 22 years old and was discovered in Greenwich Village, New York, and invited by the manager of the Animals to audition for a new group being formed in England, and it happened, and the Jimi Hendrix Experience is the name of the group, and they've had a couple of top ten hits in England. Hey Joe is one of them, and the Purple Haze is the other, and this is their first appearance in America. So a new group, Jimi Hendrix Experience, traveling with the monkeys. The last things I want to talk about are fair market pricing and dynamic pricing. When an act decides to go on tour, they have to work out how much money it's going to cost and balance that with how much money it hopes to make. Many things are plugged into a spreadsheet. The number of shows, how many available seats and or general admission space in each of the venues, the cost of equipment and fuel and trucks and roadies and buses and airfare and hotel rooms and catering. It's a very long list, and the costs add up very quickly. Plus, a lot of this stuff has to be paid for before tickets go on sale. So planning a tour is really risky. You don't know when things could go terribly wrong. Just ask any act who had their tours canceled by the pandemic. All these factors and more go into how the artist, the manager, the booking agent, and promoter set the face value of all tickets for all the gigs. The key is to set at least one level of ticket at a price that looks accessible to the average fan. No artist wants to be seen as gouging anyone. But ultimately, the buck stops with the artist. They have the final say on the price of their tickets. Then we move to the ticket seller. This is where service charges come in. Ticketmaster, or whoever is selling the tickets, do not get a piece of the face value of the ticket. Service charges is how the ticket seller covers their costs, their services, and makes a profit. Some tours may see the inclusion of a facility fee, which helps the venue defray its costs. And finally, there's sales tax, or even multiple sales taxes. Bottom line is all this adds up pretty quickly, and it annoys the fans greatly. 
Now, here is a weird thing. The artist could ask for all-in pricing. That means the price you see includes all the charges for the ticket rolled into one. That has been tried. But the strange thing is that studies have shown that this annoys fans just as much as the drip, drip, drip of multiple fees. So who gets the blame? The ticket seller. And this is by design. Ticketmaster, for example, expects to take the heat over prices. This deflects blame from the act and makes them look good in comparison, or in a worst-case scenario, less bad. Remember how I said that holdback tickets managed to leak out and away from the original intended holders of those tickets? That's how a lot of them reach the secondary market. Those sellers then apply a markup to the ticket to what they believe is the fair market value of the ticket. Remember how I said that bands have long undervalued and underpriced their tickets? Meanwhile, if the ticket sells, the secondary seller pockets the difference. The artist gets nothing, which doesn't seem fair, does it? Not only does this make it more difficult for fans to buy tickets, the act doesn't benefit from their popularity, their talent, and their risk. And this is where dynamic pricing comes into play. Just like hotel rooms and airline tickets and Uber rides go up and down with demand, Dynamic pricing algorithms seek to find that sweet spot between what the popularity of the artist is and the willingness of the fans to buy a ticket. In other words, the fair market value of a ticket. And who gets the difference in this case? Not a scalper, but the artist. So if demand is high, the price goes up. This causes controversy during the first couple of days a tour goes on sale, especially for a super popular act. The servers get slammed with ticket requests, driving the price up. And that's when we get the stories of nosebleed seats selling for $5,000, and it's all over the news, and people are all outraged about it. But if you just wait, demand moderates. The algorithm adjusts, and the price falls. Nobody ever reports on that. For example, when Bruce Springsteen started selling tickets for his 2023 tour, horror stories appeared in the news involving dynamic pricing. However, demand soon softened, and for a while, some secondary sellers found themselves in a bind and had to unload ticket fast. A couple of sellers offered tickets with a $59 face value for as low as $5 for some shows. So five bucks for a Springsteen concert. That's the other side of dynamic pricing. We don't hear about it in the news because no one on the artist side wants to admit that a tour is stiffing. And here's another thing. When all was said and done, the majority of tickets for that Springsteen tour sold for less than a hundred bucks. Pretty good for 2023, actually. So here's a tip. Studies show that the fair market value of a concert ticket, that balance between demand and what we're willing to pay, is usually achieved 24 to 48 hours before showtime. And it doesn't matter who's selling the ticket. One more vintage concert ad. Riptide rocker Robert Palmer is coming to the Daytona Beach Ocean Center Thursday, July 17th. Tickets for Robert Palmer are available now through all select seat outlets, the Ocean Center box office, or charge by phone at 254-4545 in Daytona, or call 1-800-858-6444 elsewhere. Robert Palmer brings his brand of blue-eyed soul to the Ocean Center in Daytona Beach, Thursday, July 17th. 
Showtime for Robert Palmer is 8 p.m., plus a special guest to be announced. And see Robert Palmer at the Bayfront in St. Petersburg, July 15th. A Phantasma concert presentation. You see what I mean about the complexities of selling concert tickets? This, this whole thing just makes my head hurt. Making things even more complicated is that people seem to think that concert tickets are special and not subject to the whims of the marketplace. So here is the brutal truth. I'm sorry to tell you this, but it's just the way it is. No matter how big of a fan you are, you do not deserve to buy a front row seat for 50 bucks. Just like you can't get a first class airline ticket to Singapore for 100 bucks. You pay the going rate. And this is where things get extremely, extremely emotional. But we'll save that for another time. If you want more ongoing history, check out the hundreds of podcasts available on all the platforms. Just download and go. Binging is encouraged. I can be found at my website, a journal of musical things.com. Get the free daily newsletter. And we may encounter each other on Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, and even TikTok occasionally. Oh, and send an email to alan at alancross.ca. Technical production for all this is by Rob Johnston. I'm Alan Cross. You've been listening to the Ongoing History of New Music podcast with Alan Cross. Subscribe to the podcast through iTunes, Google Play, Stitcher, Spotify, and everywhere you find your favorite podcasts. Thank you.